Well, welcome to week six of our study called Love Divine, the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, I know a lot of you guys are feeling like you're drinking from a fire hose. I mean, we, this is an intense book, uh, and it's, it's a, a book that is so rich and so deep that, that we're having to fly through it pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to do it over two semesters, and I still feel like I'm, I'm at a 36,000-foot level. And so you may feel like you're getting way too much information. Let me encourage you to take advantage of the devotionary that I provided. Uh, it'll give you more details. Uh, I'm not able to go into as much detail as I would like in, in each of these lessons. And today's going to be a case in point. We're, we're going to blow our way through this thing. We're going to go 1,000 miles an hour and You've got your notes, and you've also got that devotionary to go back and, and help you study deeper. So let's just jump into it this morning and get started. <clears throat> well, last week, we looked at the fact that uh, the Son's authority was beginning to be revealed. Uh, John is not writing a story. Uh, it's not in story form. He's really um, trying to communicate a theme, and that theme is the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And, and so, as we move through it, we're seeing these different things beginning to develop and, and come out in his narrative. And, and in this case, last week, we saw that his authority was beginning to be revealed, and he did that through miracles. Uh, he healed the, the official son in Capernaum, and he did it from a distance. He had power over uh, time. He had power over distance. He was able to speak a word, and the man's son was healed. Uh, we, we see his authority also in the fact that he is beginning to speak out, and it shows up in his discussions with the religious leaders. Uh, they don't like him. As a matter of fact, we saw last week in chapter 5 that they are already trying to plot ways to get rid of Jesus. And they don't like the things he's saying. They don't like the things he's doing because it's rocking their boat. It's, it's causing trouble in their world their religious world. These are the religious leaders of Israel. And this man has stepped into their world and he is beginning to overturn things, both literally and figuratively. And so there's this hatred and animosity. And Jesus spent some time in the closing verses of chapter five, articulating the fact that he and the Father, God, are one. They have a relationship. He's been sent by God and he's doing the will of God. And that very thing is what began to irritate them and will end up causing them to want to kill him because he's claiming to have equality with God. So we saw last week that he said, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. He's claiming to have authority directly from God, the father. And again, this, this didn't sit well with the religious leaders of his day. Well, this week, we're going to take it a step further and we're going to begin to see him to slowly reveal why he's come his sacrifice is going to become foreshadowed. He's going to give little glimpses along the way of why he's there. And it's important to understand this because we've already seen that the people want to see a sign. They want to see miracles. They're attracted to the miraculous things that he does. And, and yet that's not why he came. He didn't come to do miracles. He didn't come to heal everyone. He came to accomplish the will of his father. And we'll see that more clearly. The key verse for this week is, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that, that theme is gonna come up in chapter six repeatedly. This idea of hunger and thirst and satisfaction. And he's gonna do it in two different ways. 
this entire chapter, really from verse one all the way to verse 59, which is what we're gonna be looking at, is all about finding satisfaction in him. But the only way to find satisfaction in him is through his sacrifice. And this is just gonna be a, a glimpse into what he's planning to do and what God has for him to do but he's slowly letting his disciples know that there's something far greater for him to accomplish than him just coming to be their Messiah and their king and to set up his kingdom on earth so they can benefit from it. So let's dig into it. Chapter six, verse one, it says, after this, after what? Well, after Jesus has this kind of confrontational conversation with the religious leaders, something happens, he goes away. He goes again and he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, if you study all the gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can piece together a a greater picture of really what's going on. And so if you go back to Luke chapter nine, verse 10, it tells us that where he went to is a place called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is up in the north by the Sea of Galilee, and it's right there. It's it's on the shore, not, not too far off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, so Luke tells us where exactly he went. And then he goes on to tell us that the disciples had just come back from a mission that Jesus had sent them on. And you can go back and read that in the book of Luke. But John skips over all these details. He, he's not one to really get bogged down in details because he's really moving pretty quickly. We know from Matthew that Jesus was seeking to get away because he had just heard about the beheading, the death of John the Baptist. So he's trying to seek to get away, but Matthew goes on to tell us that no matter where he went, the crowd seemed to find him, and they do. And then we know from Mark that he viewed them with compassion, and we'll look at that in more detail in just a second. He saw the crowd, he had compassion, and he refers to them as sheep without a shepherd. So he's got this incredible heart for the people of Israel because they're his people. He's a Jew and he came to his own, but as we saw in the week one lesson, his own didn't receive him. So what goes on here is pretty important. John goes on and says, a large crowd was following him, finding him, seeking him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So here's that image that we had from last week that the people were looking for a sign. They wanted to see him do something. He already had a reputation. And we saw in chapter four, he said to the official who came in search of healing for his son, but he's speaking to everyone because in the original language, it's unless you all, unless all of you, all of you Jews see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, what did we just read? They came because they wanted to see a sign. They wanna see him do something. See, the world, and this is true today as it was true then, the world has to see to believe. They, they wanna visually see it. And so these people come and they want him to do some kind of a sign, some kind of a wonder. And yet the gospel that he's come to bring, the good news of Jesus Christ, reverses that and believing is seeing. If you believe, if you trust in me, you will see great things. You will experience great things. So it's a, it's a dramatically different way of looking at things. And so we're gonna see that in chapter six. But they wanna believe by seeing something. 
Hey, Jesus, do a miracle, do a sign. They'd heard and seen all the things that he had done and they wanna see more. But Paul tells us in Corinthians, we as believers, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not by what we see. He goes on and explains in 2 Corinthians that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, in other words, the physical world, what's visible to our eyes, but on what is unseen, the unknown, the unseeable. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And that is going to be revealed in chapter six as Jesus does yet another miracle, but then as he also begins to teach about who he is and why he's come. What's the purpose of his incarnation? So verse three says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now this seems like um, an unimportant detail. You almost read it and go, why, why is he sticking this in here? Why is John going through the effort to add verse four in between verses three and five? Well, it's huge. And here's why it's huge because of what the Passover means and what the Passover will continue to mean through the life of Jesus all the way up until his death. So what's going on here? The reason this is so important is because of the nature of the Passover and its relationship with the Jews. It, it establishes the context of where we're going and what is gonna happen in chapter six, because the Passover was the commem commemoration of the Israelites' departure from Egypt, where they lived in slavery. God delivered them from captivity. You remember the story how God sent Moses as their deliverer in order to bring them out of captivity and take them to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's also a commemoration of the passing over of the death angel. And so I wanna briefly go back to Exodus chapter 12 and look at this. In verse three in Exodus, it says, every man, every Jew, head of a household was to take a lamb. This is the directions given by God to Moses to give to the people on the night that the Passover, the first Passover was to take place. They were to take that lamb and it was to be a lamb without blemish and that's important. And they were to go on and they were to kill their lamb at a specific time according to the word of God at twilight. Then they were to take some of the blood and they were to take it and they were to dip a brush in it, a, a hyssop branch, and they were to put it on the doorposts and the lintels of their home. There are some who, who say that that represents the cross, the hands of Jesus and the brow of Jesus where the blood was. Um, but it's a picture of the, ne the necessary nature of sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Then he goes on in verse 13 and says, the blood shall be a sign for you. Now this is a little confusing because it really wasn't a sign for them. It was a sign for the death angel. And we'll see that. He says, it's a sign for you on the houses where you live. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and on the, all the gods of the Egyptians, I will execute judgments. Now he does it through the death angel. If you go back and study Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that. But it's God doing the judging. It's God sending the death angel. But if they have that blood on the doorpost and lintel of their home and they're inside at the time the death angel comes over, 
he will pass over their home. He will pass through and there will be no judgment on them. It goes on in verse 13, it says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that's the beginning. That's the first Passover. That's when God not only is getting ready to deliver them from Egypt, but he's delivering them from execution. How? Through the blood of an innocent, pure lamb. So he's going to pass through. He's going to pass over. Therefore, the Passover. Now, why is that important? Well, there's more to it. He also gives them directions about something else that they're to do, not just then, but for perpetuity through, throughout their generations. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here's what it says. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. They'll be excommunicated. They'll no longer have any fellowship with the people of God. He goes on in verse 19, for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. So this is some pretty serious stuff. And he goes hand in hand with the Passover. So you have the Passover, the lamb, the blood, putting the blood on the doorpost and lintel, but you also have this feast of unleavened bread. And leaven is a symbol of sin all throughout the scriptures. And so the idea is to get the leaven, get the sin out of your house, out of your home, have nothing to do with it for seven days. Because if you don't, it will permeate, it will pervade, it will infect like a cancer, it will grow. And so he says, get it out of your homes, get it out of your lives. But the important thing here is the bread itself is to be unleavened. In other words, it is to be without sin. It is unleavened. And this is going to be a picture, as we'll see in just a minute, of Jesus Christ himself, the bread of life. Then in verse 17, it says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. So in this little verse, verse four of John chapter six, there's a tremendous amount of information packed in and, and we can't blow past it because he put that there because of the context of everything that's about to take place. So what happens? Lifting up his eyes, Jesus sees a large crowd was coming toward him. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, I think the reason Philip is mentioned here is because Philip is from Bethsaida. It's his hometown. So if anybody would know where to get bread, it would be him. And so Jesus turns to him and he says, where are we gonna buy bread so that these people may eat? And John goes on and says, he did this to test him because Jesus already knew what he was gonna do. And he kind of flunked the test because he really doesn't have an answer. But the emphasis is on what? It's on bread. Where are we to buy bread? And really, I think Jesus is telegraphing. He's kind of um, prophesying in a sense that you're not gonna have enough bread. You won't be able to buy the bread that these people really need because it's me. Uh, but they don't get it. They don't see it. But Jesus has a plan in store. I love what Mark 6:34 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. This is the same scene written from Mark's perspective. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looks at these people, they have come to him because they wanna see a sign and he he's, has compassion on them. He, his heart hurts for them 
because he knows what their real need is and it's him, but they're not gonna recognize him. They're not gonna understand who he is. And Jesus is completely focused on bread. Chapter six is all about bread, physical bread and spiritual bread. And that's gonna become the theme as we move through here. So Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. We don't don't have enough money. Even if we had that much money, we couldn't buy enough bread for this many people. And as the text tells us, there's 5,000 men and most likely most of those men had wives and most of those families probably had kids. So it could have been 10 to 15,000 people in this audience. But he says, there's not enough. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. I found something. But he goes, what are they for so many? This is not near enough. And so you see this idea of inadequacy, insufficiency. We don't have enough to meet the need. So Jesus doesn't even respond. I love this about him. He just says, well, have everybody sit down. Let's just get busy. You've told me you don't have enough money to buy bread. We've only got this much. It's not enough. You've admitted it, but have everybody sit down. And it says, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, what does he do? He distributes it to those who were there. He gives the food, he, he breaks the food and he begins to give it to the disciples and they begin to distribute it. And it says, also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, what did Philip say? What did Andrew say? We don't have enough money and we don't have enough food. But here it says, everyone got as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, in other words, they were completely satisfied. Everyone had as much as they wanted. No one went without. No one was unsatisfied. He tells his disciples, gather what's left over. But see, here's what's really interesting. If you compare the disciples who really represent you and I, and you compare them to Jesus, who's the bread of life, here's what you see. They see insufficiency. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. Jesus sees total sufficiency. He knows what he's going to do, and he knows he's fully capable. Why? Because he has all authority, as we saw last week. They lack vision, but he's got full provision. He can do anything he wants. He could turn literally rocks into bread if he wanted to. This is not a problem for him. They see overwhelming need. It's too much. We can't do it. There's too many people and not enough resources. And he's, he provides overflowing abundance, more than anybody could ever want. They have doubt. He's got complete confidence. They see everything through a temporal lens. He sees things eternally. And you're going to see in just a second, he's really not focused on the fact that feeding these people bread is not the issue for him. It's getting them to understand or at least begin to point them to understanding that they need him, the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. These guys are focused on the physical. He's focused on the spiritual. And all throughout the rest of this book, we're gonna see that contrast between the disciples constantly worrying about the physical and he trying to get them to understand about the spiritual You know, when he looked at the crowd, he had compassion. When they looked at the crowd, they saw nothing but a problem. 
And they really just wanted to send them away, as some of the other gospel writers tell us. So he says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So they gathered it up. And when the people saw this, look at what they say. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, why did they say this? Because they had been filled with food. Remember that statement that Jesus made, unless you all see a sign, you won't believe. Well, they not only saw one, they ate one. They had their appetites fully satiated and they go, this is God, I'd be a prophet who's come into the world. And then they take it a step further. Jesus sees what's going on in their minds and in their hearts because it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again. He pulls away from them. He leaves that vicinity and he goes back up into the mountain. What's going on here? First of all, they call him a prophet because he's done some great things and we'll see the, really what they have in mind, but then they wanna make him a king. This is the, the problem that all of the Jews, those Jews who were attracted to Jesus, including the disciples, were wrestling with. They wanted him to be the Messiah, but in a, in a certain definition of the Messiah. They want to all make him a king. See, their seeing is making them believe that this guy is pretty amazing. This guy can do anything. This guy could provide us with bread, not just now, but forever. So let's make him our king. But here's the problem. Their vision was cluttered by, and, and it's blurred by personal desire. They are totally focused on the physical. And guys, this, this is so true today that people come to Jesus for a better life now. People come to Jesus hoping that he's gonna radically improve their marriage. He's gonna give them a better job. He's gonna give them perfect health. They totally focus on the physical and they lose sight of the spiritual, the true reason why he came. You see, their belief was flawed by selfish motives. They wanted to make him king, but for all the wrong reasons. They, they were really looking for a welfare state. Hey, if this guy is king, we'll never have to work again. We'll never have to go collect wheat. We'll never have to bake bread because he will give us all the bread we need. See, everything's skewed. Everything's wrong. They wanted a king who would get rid of all their what? Physical hunger. But that's not why Jesus came, right? That's not why he came to earth. They were well-intentioned. They were well-meaning and they were sincere because he literally had to leave them, otherwise they were gonna try to force him to be king. But their believing's based on a faulty vision. They have a faulty understanding of who he is and why he came, and that's nothing but a false gospel. And here's something I need you to understand that I also need to understand as we, we go through what we're going through right now, here in 2020, in the middle of an election, and so much turmoil and so much confusion. There are so many false gospels being communicated and not just in the church and not just by people claiming to be Christians. See, you and I, if we're not careful, we're gonna put our hope in some politician, some program, some policy, and we're gonna, that's gonna be the thing that makes life better. That's the things that's gonna improve our lot in life. 
We may be putting hopes in a vaccine. We may be putting hopes in this politician or that politician or that platform or this platform. And here's what I'm trying to get you to understand is none of those things is the gospel. None of those things will ever provide because they're totally physically oriented. They offer a false redemption narrative. They offer, offer a false hope because our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And that's the point of this passage. Now, what's interesting is that John is going to stick right in the middle of this chapter, another remarkable event that we're going to skip over. And I know you're scratching your head and go, why in the world would you skip over this? Because of time. And, and it, it's Jesus walking on the water. They, the, the disciples get in a boat. He sends them away. He says, I'll join you later. And they think he's just going to get in another boat and meet them. But he sends them and they get caught in a storm. And then Jesus comes walking across the water to them. Once again, revealing his authority over the waves, over the wind, over the natural world. He's always trying to get his disciples to understand there's something more to him than just a good teacher. There's something more to him than just a miracle worker. But we're going to go right past this and we're going to go to the the point in chapter six that connects the first part with the ending part. And it's this teaching that he, he gives to his disciples. It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, in other words, the group that had been fed, they wake up the next morning. Now they're hungry again. And who do they go looking for? Jesus. Why? Because they hope he'll give them more bread. They go looking for him. And they noticed that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So they go back to the place where they had eaten and they are looking for Jesus. And I think you understand why they're looking for Jesus because they want another free meal. And so they come searching for him. And it says in verse 25, when they found him, they, they look long and hard and they find him on the other side of the sea. So they got in boats and they went across the sea in search of their would-be king, their provider of a welfare state. And they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? They, they kind of start with small talk. They, they don't go right to the gist of what they really are there for. They say, when did you get here? And Jesus I think knowing their hearts said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, which is interesting, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is a fascinating statement from the lips of Jesus because he knows why they're there. They, they got their sign. Now they're looking for something different. They're looking for food, loaves, bread, sustenance. And he shifts the emphasis because they've shifted their emphasis from signs to sustenance. See, they've gone totally physical. They're thinking, man, food, I'm hungry. He fed us last night. He can feed us again. And their thoughts and their minds have shifted from seeing to now they just want to eat. Now they want a sign, but the really, the gist of their sign, the goal of the sign is to get food. They want to eat. They've gone from believing to benefiting. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do for me today? Hey, Jesus, what what miracle are you going to perform today? I hope it's food. And that's going to become very clear in just a second. 
And again, I want you to stop and think how many times you may do that with Jesus, that you come to him and he's provided you with something miraculous, your salvation, and you come to him begging for more. I want more. I want more peace. I want more this. I want more that. I need more money. I need uh, peace in my home. I, I, need, I need a, you name it. And you're really not looking for him. You're looking for what he could do for you. See, I love this from Thomas Constable. He says, they were not interested in him because they identified him as the God-man, but because Jesus could fill their stomachs. Think about your prayer life. Think about how many things you pray about and ask God for, or you ask the Lord for, and you, it's always about your physical needs. And I'm not telling you not to pray for your physical needs, but guys, he's come to do far more than meet your physical needs. And so here we have these people, they've shown up and they, they, they want him to feed them again. And he tells them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He, he basically gives them two different bookends. He talks about food that perishes and food that endures. He's talking about physical things and spiritual things. And once again, he's trying to point them towards what he's come to do. The sacrifice that he's come to offer on their behalf. And right now it's kind of veiled, but it's gonna become clearer as we move through the rest of these verses. So he says, don't work for perishable food, <clears throat> work for the food that endures to eternal life. And this picture of work, <clears throat> excuse me, effort is gonna be used over and over again in these verses. He says, I've come, the son of man has come to bring you food that lasts, food that brings eternal life. And he's gonna go on to try to explain to them what he means by that. For on him, the son of man, God the father has set his seal. Once again, he's claiming his authority, claiming who sent him, that he's come on behalf of God the father. And then he said, they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, if we need to do the works of God in order to get this food we want, what is it we need to do? But again, all their emphasis is on what? Getting bread, getting food, filling their stomachs, getting their physical needs met. But Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You're stuck on the wrong kind of work. You're stuck on what you must do. But see what he's doing now is he's, he's flipping it. This isn't about your self-righteousness. This is not about your effort. And that's the heart of the gospel. It's about belief. It's about faith, not in what you can do, but in what Jesus Christ is going to do. So he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe in Jesus Christ. And they don't get it. They don't understand what he means by work here. But for us as believers living on this side of the cross, we understand that he's talking about faith. He's talking about belief in him, not physical effort, not good deeds, not good works, but just faith in him. Believe in him who has been sent by God. So they said, then what sign do you do? I love this about them. They, they, they're so persistent. And now they're beginning to think, okay, it's, it's not what we need to do. It's what he's going to do. So they say, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Hey, Jesus, do something so that we may believe. You're telling us that we have to believe, then do something. Perform a sign, perform a miracle, do something to impress us. 
But again, they're missing the point. What sign do you do, Jesus? What work do you perform? And then they begin to give him a hint. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So these guys start to focus in on something. Jesus has said, you got to believe. So they said, then do something we can believe in. Do us a sign. For instance, like manna. Remember Moses? Remember what he did? Why not do something like that? Because he, Moses, gave them bread from heaven. That's what manna was. It came down out of heaven. And so what's going on here? I love this about them. They're back to wanting a sign. Show us a sign. But they're getting really specific and they're giving suggestions, not even subtle suggestions. You ever done that with Jesus? You know, pray to him and say, you know, I have an idea for you. I got something I think you ought to do for me. And we give him suggestions. We don't really ask him what he would desire. We tell him what we desire. And that's exactly what they're doing. First of all, they're saying the kind of king they would like. Remember, they wanted to make him king and they had a certain kind of king in mind, a deliverer and provider like Moses because Moses was kind of like a king. He was a deliverer. He was a leader. He was sent by God. And look what he did for his people. He gave them bread, bread out of heaven. But they're also telling them what they would prefer in terms of the kind of provision from this king. And again, it's specific. They want an unending supply of bread, bread from heaven. Do you really see what's going on here? They want from Jesus what they want. And what they want is purely physical. Unending supplies of bread. But Jesus sees through them and Jesus is trying to direct them in a different direction. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember, he's focusing on bread. He's trying to get them to think about physical, but he wants to move them to spiritual. And it's, it's a hard task. It's, it's almost impossible to get their minds off of what they want. Then he goes on and says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's beginning to shift the emphasis away from this idea of physical bread, the kind of bread they got the day before, the kind of bread that Moses gave them in the wilderness to a new kind of bread, the bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world. But you see where their heads are. They say, sir, give us this bread always. We'll take some of that bread. It's just like his encounter with the Samaritan woman who, when he talked about uh, eternal water, she said, well, I'll take some of that water if it means I never have to come back to this well and draw again. She missed the point, they missed the point. But see, Jesus is trying to tell them that this is about a different kind of life. It's not bread to sustain your physical life. It's bread to sustain your spiritual life. But they want this bread. And then Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. And he's gonna say that repeatedly. In verse 35, he says it again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And all they're hearing is hunger and thirst. Physical hunger, physical thirst. And they want some of that. That's appealing to them, but that's not what he's talking about. And too often, 
we miss the point of why Jesus came. We miss the point of what he wants to do in our lives. And we focus totally on the physical. And right now it's easy to do because of all that's happening around us in the physical world. We live in a time of turmoil. We live in a time of uncertainty and it's so easy to get bogged down in the physical. Physical health, physical well-being, financial well-being. And we worry and we fret and we forget why he came. And he's trying to get them to focus their attention on the reality of spiritual life, not physical life. He says, I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. I am the bread of life. I've said it, but you don't believe me. You will not believe in me. This is one of seven I am, I am statements found in the book of John that Jesus states about himself. I said to you, you have seen me, but you do not believe me. You do not believe I'm the bread of life. You don't, do not believe that I can truly eliminate your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst. All you want is bread and water. All you want are your physical needs met, but that is not why I came. So skip all the way down to verse 41. It says, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They're grumbling because they don't get it. They don't understand him. And they say, isn't this jo Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, isn't this a guy that he's from Nazareth? What's he talking about? How is he the bread of life? What does he mean by this? And they begin to grumble. They begin to argue among themselves because they don't understand what it is he's offering them. All they can think about is food and physical appetite and getting their physical, physical appetite met. But Jesus once again and says, how does he, how do they, they respond? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? What does that mean? How does he come down from heaven? How is he the bread of life? How does he meet my physical needs? What's he talking about? And it's gonna get worse. If they're confused now, just watch what happens. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Remember, it's about belief. It's not about them working for anything. It's about them believing in him. Once again, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and guess what, they died. That bread did not sustain them for eternity. That bread did not give them eternal physical life. They died, even though they ate bread from heaven provided by God. Then in verse 50, he says, this is the bread that comes down from, from heaven. It's a different kind of bread. It has a different purpose and it has a remarkably different outcome. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Once again, these words are flying right over their heads. They do not get what he's saying. And he's gonna make it even more confusing. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is where it really gets kind of weird for him. What's he talking about? How is he this bread? How is he living bread? What does he mean by this? And what does he mean when he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he's talking about himself. Now put yourself in their sandals. If you were hearing this for the first time in that context, you too would be confused. You may be confused right now. 2000 years later, reading this from the New Testament. But Jesus goes on and says, and the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. This is where they totally disconnected. What? You want us to eat your flesh? What are you talking about? If they were grumbling earlier, now they're totally disgusted. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. But he adds to it, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
That's pretty amazing stuff. You got to eat the flesh of the son of man, drink his blood. Otherwise you have no life. This hit them like a ton of bricks, but he keeps adding on to it. He's overwhelming them with his rhetoric, what he's trying to get across to them. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last days. It's getting radically disgusting for them. And, and again, they're stuck in a physical world. So they're thinking physical thoughts. They're thinking literally eating his body and drinking his blood. Verse 55, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. All of this is leaving them dumbfounded. They don't understand it. But he doesn't let off the pedal. He just keeps moving forward. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. See, he's communicating on a spiritual level that is way above their pay grade. They can't fathom what he's talking about because they're stuck on a physical realm. And everything he's saying to them leaves them disgusted, leaves them totally flabbergasted by what, what is he talking about? Who is he? What does he want us to do? Verse 58, once again, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live. Whoever feeds on me, whoever eats this bread, me, will live. And see, this is totally confusing. But this is the beginning of Jesus revealing why he came. See, they need far more than bread, physical bread. They need far more than water coming out of a well or a spring. They need something that will meet their spiritual needs, and it's him. And I love how John closes this thing out. Jesus says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then he reveals that Jesus said these things in the synagogue. He, he saves till the very end where all this conversation took place. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Why is that important? Because of what the synagogue represents. Everybody in that room was a Jew. He's speaking to Jews. And he's emphasizing Moses and manna because they get it. As a matter of fact, they brought it up. So he's dealing with something they were very familiar with, but he's taking it to a much different level. He's giving it a much deeper meaning than what it meant in Exodus. So they find his words not only confusing, but repulsive, repugnant, disgusting, unacceptable, unbelievable. What is this man talking about? And yet what Jesus is doing, and this is what's so significant, is that he's foreshadowing his sacrificial death. They don't get it yet. And his real audience in all these conversations is always the 12 disciples. Everything he says, everything he does, every miracle he performs is for their benefit. And this was just as much for their benefit as any other story in the book of John or any of the other gospels. And if you fast forward to the, to the end of his life, and it's chronicled by Luke in chapter 22, when he's sitting in that upper room with his disciples, eating what? The last Passover meal he'll, he'll have on this planet in bodily form. Here's what he said. He took some of the bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Here we are years later at the end of his mission on earth as he begins to prepare his disciples for his pending death in Jerusalem. And he's talking about what? My body and my blood. Now you would think that the men automatically make the connection back to chapter six, that meeting in the synagogue. But we know from the gospels that they still, even at this point, never connected all the dots until he rose again from the dead. But here he is talking about his body. See, in Matthew chapter five, verse six, it tells us in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for the right thing, for the will of God, the ways of God, you will be satisfied. How? Through him, through his sacrificial death. Jesus would become our source for righteousness. As a matter of fact, because of his death, we receive his righteousness. We are made right with God by receiving, having imputed to us his righteousness. See, physical bread sustains physical life, but he came to bring the true bread, to be the true bread that brings what? Spiritual life. Well, what about his blood? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses from all sin, John writes in his first letter. His blood is purifying. His blood had to be spilled. It had to be let out. You know, we know he bled from the wounds on his back and from the thorns on his brow, but there's, there's that point in time where the Roman soldier takes a spear and sh- thrusts it into his side and the blood and water comes out. It's almost as if it's a picture of the sacrificial lamb that they had to drain the blood from the lamb. And and he spilled his blood so that we might, might be cleansed. His blood purifies. His blood makes us acceptable to God. It provides forgiveness for our sins permanently. So all of this is being foreshadowed. All of this is being shown in this teaching in the synagogue, but it was also shown in his providing of the bread on that hillside because he came to provide himself as the bread of life. So here's your thoughts. Here's your discussion questions for this week. First of all, what does Jesus' description of himself as the bread from heaven have to do with the nature of his death? Spend some time thinking about that. How does that tie into his death? Secondly, in verse four, John mentions that the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Since a big part of the Passover meal was the unleavened bread and the Passover lamb, why is this point important? Hopefully you've gotten a glimpse of that through the lesson, but spend some more time thinking about that, wrestling with that, because he included that verse four for a reason. And then finally, how does the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 foreshadow the death of Jesus? What did he do that points to his future role as the bread of life? Think about what he did. Think about the physical actions he took in breaking the bread and handing it out to those people. And think about what motivated it. Compassion. And he looked on them as sheep without a shepherd. Well, let me pray for us and then... We'll see you next week. Father, I thank you for this incredible chapter. I thank you that it is so full that it makes it difficult to even teach it and get through it. But I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would help every guy that's watching this to hear from you and not from me, that they would understand with greater clarity why it is you came. And that while you do care about our physical needs and you do meet our physical needs, you truly care about our spiritual needs and your son came to die 
on our behalf, that he might transform us into his likeness, that we might receive forgiveness for our sins and that what we might become the children of God. I thank you for that. And would you reveal it to us and make it real to us through our discussions together. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you and I will see you next week. All right, Dan, you're good. Thank you. All right, bud.